And I said, what, do you want to see my book? And she's like, I've seen it. And she's, I said, what do you want to talk about? And she said, ambition. And so we talked about what we wanted to create and ended up drinking Budweiser for about three hours. And Budweiser was the first real brief that was coming. I mean, long story short, uh, I woke up with a hangover and a job. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with designer Tosh Hall about how to work with established brands. Leave the brand better than you found it and do no harm. A lot of cases that you've seen in the last 20 years in our field, people have not applied those rules. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. I love to travel. Whether it is for pleasure or business or design conferences or speaking engagements, I love to visit places I've never been before and experience new things. AC Hotels by Marriott has been striking the perfect balance of the details I want when I'm on the road. AC Hotels are intuitively designed, refined, crafted, and considered to create an elegant and unobtrusive experience that lets me maximize enjoyment, inspiration, and efficiency. The AC guest rooms provide me with everything I need and nothing I don't. They're uncluttered and truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. Tosh Hall is the global chief creative officer at the branding firm Jones Knowles Ritchie. His portfolio includes big-name brands like Duncan, Target, and Budweiser, and he's been named one of the 50 most creative people by Advertising Age. But he didn't get into design and branding in the typical way through art or design school, which is probably one of the reasons he has such interesting things to say about design and branding in our era of constant change. Tosh Hall, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. I think, what is this? The 15th year? I've been listening to you for 15 years before I even really got into branding. So wow. excited to be here. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. Thank you. Tosh, I understand that your creative life began with crayons and a mother who indulged your desire to draw by covering the walls and the floors of your house with paper so you could run wild and do what so many parents actually scream at their kids not to do. Um, what kinds of things were you making and drawing? Oh, I have no idea. I'm sure they're terrible. But instead of, I think what most parents probably do is they smack your hand and they clean the wall when you draw. They scream. and They scream. And, yeah. It's minded. Instead, for some reason, uh, the, the favorite place of mine was the art closet. And so the art closet was full of lots of different art, lots of different supplies, paint, glitter, glue. Wait, your mother had an art closet. Yeah, art closet. And so I would go to the art closet, take out whatever I wanted, draw not only on the walls but on the floor, and she kept them all. Was she a hippie? She definitely was a hippie. And what did she do for a living? Well, at the time, she was a creative too. She was a dancer. She was going to school at Ohio State doing all kinds of interpretive hippie 70s dance stuff, probably some ballet, probably who knows what. And then when I came along, she left dance in the kind of creative way behind left dance as a you know, ballerina or someone studying dance. And then, of course, it's the 80s. 
And so it's all about aerobics. So she was like a little Jane Fonda of the South. How did she most influence you? I mean, she influenced me a lot because I grew up and she was a single mother for a long time. And so it started with creativity as a vehicle for expression, not really uh, anything that you could earn a living at. I only found that much later. As much as we could, we went to every art museum. We went everywhere that we could see something cultural, you know, symphonies. Everyone goes to the Nutcracker. Everything you could have from like Asheville and then Charlotte and then Washington, D.C. So just further and further and further out. We would take trips to the Smithsonian. So as much culture as I could absorb, that was a big thing. And your mom, I understand, saved a lot of these huge pieces of paper. Have you ever looked back at them? Have you reconsidered what your early artistic talent was like? uh, No talent. It was terrible. It's been bad for years. You know, some children create great art. Mine was, I think, just fun with materials. So no, it was, she still has them, but they're weird. You told Adweek that you don't know how you start a career in branding at three years old with a crayon, but in retrospect, it seems to make sense. Have you always been that freewheeling with your creativity? Probably not. I think everything makes sense in retrospect. At the time, I think I didn't even know that creativity was a a profession, that you could even work in this field. I didn't figure that out until I was in college and got exposed to print magazine. That was the very first time I realized it was even a career in graphic design. Well, you studied economics and journalism at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Why economics, given the upbringing that you had? Art was always a, a passion, a hobby. And in school, I was good at science, good at math. I liked the study of economics from like a, trends and what's happening in the world and the kind of how businesses are built. I like the study and theory of it. But when I studied economics, all my friends ended up either becoming economics professors, coming to Wall Street and working as bankers, doing something with their economics degree that was more traditional. And none of that stuff felt right for me. Why journalism? Journalism I liked. Journalism was the communications vehicle. And when I discovered graphic design was a thing, it turns out that the University of North Carolina had a very small program in the journalism program. And it was really through print magazine? You just discovered an issue sitting somewhere on a table? So I would go out in the summers to my aunt in California. And then I went there for Thanksgiving one year, and she's like, what are you going to do? You're studying economics. Is that really your passion? We're walking on the beach in California in Santa Barbara after Thanksgiving, and it's a hippie kind of California Thanksgiving. Where so it's your mom's sister. Mom's sister, yeah. And so it's a very California, not traditional, walking on the beach, not watching football. And she's like, what are you doing with your life? I said, well, I'm studying economics. She says, what are your passions? I'm like, I like creativity. I like music. Maybe I could be a jazz musician. And she's like, no, no. Why? She's just like, I'm terrible at jazz, apparently. <laughs> and so, so she said, well, how about something in the arts? What do you think about something to use your your passion and creativity, what would you do? I'm like, I don't even think there's jobs that you can do. And she, for some reason, out of just curiosity and interest, had a subscription to print. We went back from the beach, and she showed me the back issues. And I started looking at them. For Christmas that year, she got me a subscription, and I would go through it every year and look at what was happening in New York, look at what was happening in California, and think, oh, this is a real job. And then I made my list of places I wanted to work at. So that was the very beginning. Well, we'll get to that in a minute or two. I understand that you got your first job working with who you've described as a craggy pressman with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth and ink smeared on his hands. So what was that job and where was it? University of North Carolina Press, known as UNC Printing at the time. Heidelberg Press, it was huge. 
uh, my first internship. They had just started to get Macs, and I was doing work on the Mac, and I was working Quirk Express, and I was like a junior designer with senior designers and design directors kind of helping me do some stuff for the university. And I would do things, and then upstairs I would go to the craggy pressman who would basically wrap my knuckles and say, you can't print with 90 colors. Here's what CMYK is. Here's what PMS is. And I basically learned everything through doing it. Did he have a T-shirt with a particularly interesting message on it? Probably superior inks. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, The most interesting message was at the very first year that I was at UNC printing, there was a stripping department that did film stripping before we went direct to plate. And my real job is stripping was her her T-shirt. You then completed an internship in the art department of a publisher in London. How and why did you end up in London and what were you designing? I wanted to go to London because I was 19 and you could drink beer in London. I'd never been to London. That was the sole criteria? Yeah, yeah. My friends in the econ department who actually, you know, were getting good grades and had internships at banks were going. And I thought that would be fun. I should go. And so I told my mother I got a job in a pub. And she said, that's not good enough. You need a real internship. You got to think about your career. So I find myself in a publishing firm. I originally showed up at the publishing firm as just an intern that does anything. I was wearing khaki pants, if you can imagine, button-up blue blazer with gold buttons. You know, I was from Chapel Hill, had a kind of yellow tie and a blue Oxford shirt. Terrible. Sounds like you were going to a bar mitzvah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to a preppy internship in London, which was strange. I showed up, and they said, are you here to fix the copier? (laughs) And I said, no, I'm your intern. And they said, well, make us a cup of tea then. And I was terrible at making tea, so I wasn't allowed to make tea anymore. I had to alphabetize files. (laughs) I did whatever they wanted me to do. And then I went from department to department until I landed in the art department. And it was the design department. And they had stacks of briefs for book covers. And the designer gave me the bottom of his stack and said, here, have fun with that. And I had worked in uh, the school newspaper, so I knew how to use Cork Express. So I started laying out some books, and they circulated them. And the editors picked them. So I said, you're staying in this department, and you're going to do book covers. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. What year was that? It would have been like... 98 or 99. So you came to New York immediately after graduating. I came to New York September of 2001. Why did you choose that particular time? Well, I did what I told my parents was a second degree in journalism, which was really just a victory lap in college so I could do five years. And then when I graduated, it was time to go somewhere to pursue graphic design. I couldn't get a, uh, a visa in London. I didn't know anyone in San Francisco. And friends were in New York. And so my girlfriend and I just got in a U-Haul and drove to New York City. You moved to New York City with what you've described as the worst possible portfolio imaginable and subsequently found the transition to be a harsh wake-up call. What happened? What was so difficult? Well, the timing wasn't awesome. I showed up September 1st, 2001. Ten days later, we had September 11th. Yes. So that was... a. You know, my parents and everyone said, you're moving back home, obviously. And I said, no, I'm staying. New York City is where I'm going to be. It's the best place to be a graphic designer. I had a portfolio that was hilarious. It was a giant aluminum box. Everything was original. Everything was on illustration board. And I thought that I was I was great because I was doing real work. I was getting paid to do book covers. And I thought, I've made it. Obviously, I'm going to show up with my portfolio in New York City and get a job at Pentagram. And so I <laughs> dropped it off. This is when they had portfolio drop-offs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so I dropped it off at the one, you know, just above Madison Square Park uh, to the attention of Michael Beirut, obviously. And he wrote me a very nice letter. That what said, did it say? It said, uh, don't be discouraged. Obviously, we're not hiring you. But New York... He didn't write, obviously, we're not hiring you. No, that was you. the impression okay, for me. Okay. No, it was, do not be discouraged. 
New York is a great place to be a designer. Stay in, in touch. Keep doing what you're doing. Of course, I didn't stay in touch at all, but it was a very nice letter. I still have it. So you started to job search. You began with this list of your favorite design firms. Pentagram was number one. I believe Lander was number two. Who else did you apply for jobs with? Oh, I can't remember. I did the top ten, and basically I just looked at the print magazines, who was either winning awards, getting recognized in the regional annual, who I'd heard of, who were branding firms out there. Top ten, top 25, top 50, in-house, printers, kinkos. Tell us what happened. Why was it so difficult for you? I think it was a tough time to look for a job in New York. I think that I felt like an outsider. I wasn't. I didn't go to portfolio school. I didn't have any connections. I didn't go to SVA. I didn't really know how to do anything. I had some on-the-job experience working in printing. I did some book covers. You know, I I thought Chip Kid was the coolest. I imitated his work. He is. I hadn't found what my voice was in design, and also I was just a little bit behind the curve. So I went through all the places to try to find anyone that would give me a chance. Why wouldn't Kinko's hire you? That was a hilarious experience. Tell us everything. 72nd Street and Broadway. New York City is not going to break me. I'm going to find a job. I understand the actual quote was, fuck you, New York, you're not going to break me. That was after I went in and I said, excuse me, sir, can I have an application? And he said, "We're, we're we're not accepting applications at this time. Can I speak to your manager? I am the manager. And I think he was younger than me. And I said, can I have an application anyway? I'll fill it out. And he said, sure, but we're, we're not going to accept it. And I said, just just give it to me. So he gave it to me. I walked outside, broad daylight, 72nd and Broadway, burst into tears. Crumpled in, the, in, in my fist, threw it in the trash, and I did give New York City the bird and told New York City to fuck off. It won't break me. How did you eventually get a job? It cost money to use the alumni directory for some reason at that point. So I used my girlfriend's login and typed in, for the University of North Carolina, 1950 to the present, graphic design. And I got four hits. Two of them were receptionists. I went to meet them and, and asked, you know, how, how I could get my foot in the door. And they said, well, you can be the receptionist because I'm looking for my replacement. And I, I considered it. One of them uh, was an architecture firm, and they had to work on PCs, so I just refused. One of them was... More interesting, but I said, can I get into the design department? They said, no, we want you to answer phones. I said, could I get into the design department at some point? No, you're the receptionist. The third person I called was doing something loud, and I had this whole terrible spiel. Hi, I'm Tosh. I went to the University of North Carolina. I'm studying graphic design. I'm in New York City. I want to be a designer. Can you help me? And he was doing something like moving or some loud noises in the background. He stopped what he was doing and said, New York City is hard. Graphic design is fucking harder. Good luck. Bang. Phone hung up. Fourth person was the head of the studio at Revlon named Phil Lee. And he's like, sure, come visit. Bring your portfolio. And so I did. I showed up. I go to the, This is on 58th and Madison, the big lipstick building, Revlon at its peak. I go there. I'm here to see Phil Lee. He's not here today. I was like, but I have an interview. So I left, went home, called me. I'm sorry, I was sick. Come back. This is, I think, November maybe December 2001. He's like, we're not hiring. You know, in fact, I have to let people go. But I'll look at your book and I'll show you around. It was an amazing experience. They had like full CVSs, full Target walls. They were doing everything but advertising, all the display, all the packaging. I'd never done any packaging work. They had a model shop. He was super nice to me. And he said, 
You never stay in touch. Same as Michael Beirut. They say that, but you never stay in touch. Months went by looking for work. I went to the kind of recruiters, dropped off my resumes, tried to get jobs. Finally, in December, I got a job at Citibank. Actually, at Solomon Smith Barney. I was like, I'm finally using my econ degree. Instead, I was working in the basement, taking Sandy Weil, who was the CEO at the time of Citibank, and cutting his uh, press clippings and pacing them down. But I thought, oh, my God, I've made it. I called my mother, and I said, I made it. I have a job in New York City. And I came home, and it was like it had been an entire season of looking for work, and finally I had a job. So your job was to cut out articles about Sandy Weil and put them into a scrapbook? Yep. My first job in New York City, scrapbooking awesome. for the CEO. I was, I was working at a, a place my mother had heard of, Citibank. I was working for the CEO. I was working in New York City. Yeah. It's amazing. When I graduated, I had no money, and I was desperate to find a job so that I could stay in New York. I didn't want to go home to my mother in Queens. It was so hard at first to find a job that I actually started reconsidering my options and thought maybe I needed to go to school to learn to become a secretary, which I started to do. I started to fill out an application to go to what was then called, and I don't know if it still exists, Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School, because I was so desperate to get a job and I wasn't getting a job. But my first job was designing the blow-in cards that you see in magazines. But I was like, I'm working at a magazine. I don't care what I'm doing. I'm working <laughs> at a magazine. Blowing cards are really important. But Absolutely. how did you end up getting ahead? How long did you work at, at Citibank? Did you hang out with Sandy? Were you and Sandy like mano I, a mano? No, no, no. I saw Sandy Wow come out of his car and go into the building once. <laughs> I recognized him from all the press clippings. <laughs> so I knew who he was. Uh, my tenure at Citibank was very short-lived. Uh, I got back. Apparently, people sometimes fire you on the first day back in January. And I made the mistake in your first job of, like, decorating my desk. And so I had to take my firing box full of my plant, my things, and leave. Wait, you got, you got hired in December and you got fired in January? Yeah, I was not very good at cutting things out and pasting them down. But you were a designer. How could you not be good at cutting and pasting? I think I had a bad attitude. <laughs> what kind of bad attitude? You know, I was probably tardy. I was probably snarky. I probably was not listening to whoever the senior paste-up art director was. Who knows? It did not last. What did your mother think when you had to tell her you were fired? It was finally time to come back to North Carolina. Oh. But I get fired. First day back, I take the 6 train at rush hour because, you know, I'm going to do some retail therapy, and I'm going to go with my girlfriend to J. Crew and spend some J. Crew gift cards. But I have my firing box. On the 6th train, middle of rush hour, who's in the train car? Philly. He recognizes me. I recognize him. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, uh, I've had a change <laughs> in my employment status. He's like, obviously, nice plant. What have you been up to? I'm like, nothing. He's like, I have a designer sick next week. Do you want to come in? And I said, absolutely. And so I came in for three days. And he's like, Thursday, we're done. We don't need you. I waited two more weeks. He called me couple days, and then just started showing up on Mondays. I showed up on a Monday, and he said, I didn't call you. I said, but I'm here. What can I do? And I was just an eager beaver, and I just kept showing up, and eventually he hired me. You just showed up? Yeah, yeah. In the lobby, hey, Phil. I'm here. And he put you to work? Yeah. Did he pay you? Yeah. 
Wow. So you worked in, I believe you worked in the production department yeah, yeah, it at wasn't, first. It so, wasn't, I wasn't in the design department. I had to transition from the production department. So I went from getting fired, cutting paste up for Sandy Weil, to faking my way into a job as like a junior production designer. And then the production team got folded. And Phil pulled me aside and said, I got you an interview with one of the art directors. And so I showed my work. They hired me as a designer. So you were at Revlon for three years. I was. Now, going back to some of those uh, job interviews at some of the agencies, I did that once too. And when I got there, I had to fill out a test. I had to do a test that they gave me. And because all of my early education was at my school newspaper as well, I realized two questions in that I didn't know any of the answers to any of the questions. They were like, how many pikas in an inch? And I was like, what the fuck is a pika? And <laughs> I ran out <laughs> crying <laughs> because I had no idea what they wanted me to be able to do. And I was so ashamed of not knowing anything on the test. We had no tests. I do remember the executive creative director of Revlon when I was a designer in the design department, required us all to use Quark Express because at the time, InDesign had just come out, but they hadn't got it right. And Quark Express handled type the best. Oh, that was, it was, those were, those were the heydays of yeah, you computer could, typography it was as great. far as I was concerned and back so, then. Like you, I had learned on the school newspaper, I had laid about book covers in Quark Express, and it was time to use that skill for making beautiful displays for inside of a, like a Dwayne Reed like laying out type, laying out the beautiful photographs of all the models. She comes over on a Friday afternoon and says, why are you using InDesign? And I said, because it's easier. We're in OS 10. I have to go back to OS 9 to work at Quark Express. And she said, well, I told you to work in Quark Express. I want to see 50 new layouts by tomorrow. I said, tomorrow's Saturday. She's like, yeah, see you at 10. And so that was my test is doing it all and all over again and over again and over again and being yelled at by my art directors. You then went to Landor. You went from Revlon to Landor, which was ironic given that Landor was your second choice design firm when you initially moved to New York in your unsuccessful bid to work at a big design <laughs> firm. How was your approach different trying to get the job the second time around? Oh, I made a much better portfolio. And I made a portfolio of the work I wanted to create, not the work that I'd actually created. So tell me about that. Why did you, what made you decide to do that and what kind of work did you make? Well, I left the Revlon team and moved on to the Almay team. I had a lot of freedom. I did a lot of really cool things. None of it ever went to market. I get One thing went to market once, and I was on the cover of WWD, Women's Wear Daily. Not me, but the work that I had done. And I thought, I have, I've made it. I'm on WWD. And it was some intense eye color. It was a shadow, a pencil, and a mascara. And I thought, this is it. And I just showed all the work that I got up to that. I showed all the process, all the thinking, all the mood boards. I made beautiful little books and process books. When I went in for my review with the ECD of Alme, I said, what can you do after you work in cosmetics? What's next? You know, tell me about your career. Tell me about where I can go. He said, once you've worked at Revlon, you can work anywhere. And I was very excited because that's what I want. I was like, like where? Like Estee Lauder or L'Oreal? And I knew I had to quit. It wasn't for me. I wanted to be in a branding firm. I wanted to do different things and learn from, you know, the best in the business. Like most things in retrospect, it makes sense. You can't go from one to the other without connected work. And so a lot of the work that I had done in cosmetics got me the job uh, working on P&G Beauty at Lander, New York. 
And so I was hired by Chuck Ruthier, who's a very good creative director, because he didn't want to work on the account anymore. And so I was working on Clairol nice and easy at the time. Brutal account. That was rough. Legendarily brutal. Uh, it was cool, though. I mean, we wanted to do – we had a vision for Nice and Easy being, like, fun and all on white. And they launched this new product called Nice and Easy Perfect 10. It was going to be on black and macro and beautiful. And all the photographers I got to work with were amazing. Uh, they fired me after nine months, the the client. Uh, but luckily, Landra kept me. So when you get fired off of an account, you're essentially asked off the business. And yeah. did how did you get the news? Chuck told me that I was not allowed to go back because the client had asked never to see me again. What did you do that prompted such a, a radical response to your work? I was probably pretty obstinate about what they should do. And the good news is they did it three years later. I was just too... A little too early. A little too early and a little too uh, inflexible about my opinions. Given how hard it was for you to find employment in the business that you wanted to be in, and then finally achieving that position at a firm that you really respected, what gave you the confidence to be obstinate? It was the team, the account team and the creative director who I was working for brought me in and they said, we need you to push back. We need you to raise the level of the quality of the work. And I, I took that to heart and I pushed the envelope a bit too hard. I hadn't learned any, any skills from coping with clients. I just knew this was better than that. And I wouldn't bend. Of course, client will bend you. And the good news is I was able to stay, and I moved on to the Diageo account. Which is ever so slightly closer to cosmetics in terms of the preciousness of the kind of work that you're doing. Did you enjoy it more? It was much better. I had learned a lot about structure and working with the guys in the model shop and industrial design. And so the idea that we could start to play with form and structure and glass and all the different details. It was also the heyday of high-end spirits, and so you could do lots of really cool stuff. And it was a higher aesthetic. It was less mass. You were able to do really good things with typography and work with some of the best photographers, industrial designers, typographers, illustrators. You've admitted that before you got to Landor, you really didn't understand branding. Oh, for sure. What Revlon taught me was having taste. It taught me kind of preciousness and preciseness and minimalism and getting inspired. What Lander taught me was branding and really brand equity. So one of my very first ECDs, Richard Brandt, he let me run pretty free. And then he would come at the crit and he would say, you know, you might want to do something closer in. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, this tequila brand's been around for 100 years. It's had a round paper label. Everything you're doing looks like a perfume bottle. You might want to try something closer in. It's a little bit closer to their brand equities. He taught me that on Smirnoff and on Don Julio that really kind of framed my reference on how to understand what brands are about, how to respect their equities, and not just throw them away for the sake of style, which is what I was doing at the time. You went from working in production design, which is very much implementing other designers' work, to in four years at Landor becoming a creative director. How did you do that? Given how obstinate you were, being asked off clients, how'd you, how did you get ahead? I was always looking for opportunity. And the best person was the accountant person. Because I was at the time, I kind of knew my days were numbered and I wasn't really having a good time working on Clairol. I wanted to push them further than they were willing to go. It was very hard. And I talked to the Diageo account director and I said, do you need any help? What can I do? And he knew, of course, that there was a project that was about to fail, which is hilarious. It was 
Smirnoff Ice, of all things. And no one wanted to work on Smirnoff Ice. And I was like, I'll be happy to. I will work on it at night. I will do whatever I can to start working on this account. It was the account I wanted to work on. And so I think it was seeing opportunities that others perhaps didn't want to take. I'm trying to find a stepping stone to the next thing. And then I had a, you know, a few pieces of good luck. What kept you trying for more? I have no idea. In some ways, design, I think, and branding and creativity is a practice. It's a learned skill. And the more that you practice and the harder that you work, the closer you'll get to where you want to go. And I was never really happy with anything I produced. And so I needed to work and work and work and work and work. You have some particular advice for designers, which comes from one of your favorite motorcycle racing formulas for winning. And I'm wondering if you can share that, because I was wondering as I was piecing together your history through my research, if that particular formula was what subconsciously or unconsciously kept you going. I don't know. These have... uh has evolved over time because when I wasn't designing things, I, I really liked motorcycles. I started to like motorcycles even more. I started to get into racing. And you start to train. And in some ways, it's the same as design and creativity. You're trying to get better and better and better. One of the things I like about it is you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. The difference between first and last really is just a minor amount of seconds. And you have to be comfortable with the last 1% attraction. What does that mean? So... A tire only has so much traction, and everyone's expending all the traction to go as fast as they can, and it's the management of the edge of the envelope. Either you crash and you do not finish first, or you manage that edge of uncomfortableness and you finish first. And so a lot of what I learned, not in design at all, but in the racing that I did, was to let go, to be uncomfortable, and not to hold on so tight. I think the first decade of my career, I was holding on super tight because you want to achieve. You want to move forward. You want to create something that you think is great and that whatever that achievement you want to make. And I think a lot of people these days are focused on that. And if they could only just be in the flow of what they're doing, it would be easier to get there. You've said that your experience has led you to believe that talent isn't everything. What else is required? I think it's the smallest thing. And talent is maybe 10%. There are many, many people that are more talented than me. Mostly it's about hard work, which is a kind of s- silly thing to say because everyone has to work hard. But if you work harder than the talent is that you have, you'll be better off. And also the last portion is just it's luck. It's like being in the right place at the right time. If I hadn't been in that number six train, I wouldn't have met Phil. If I hadn't worked on Revlon, I wouldn't have worked on Clairol. If I hadn't been working on Clairol, I wouldn't have had the chance to work on Diageo. If I hadn't been sitting at my desk randomly when my ECD sent me a note, is there a creative director that wants to go to San Francisco and never would have moved to California? In some ways, it's preparing yourself through all the hard work, but being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage of the opportunity. How do you define working hard? Because so many people think they work hard. And if you find that working hard is one of the key criteria to success, for anybody that's listening to our interview, what can you tell someone about what it really means to work hard? The more I've worked, the more confident I've become in my creative decisions. I think in the very beginning, it was exhausting all options. It was trying everything. It was working as hard as you could. It was seeking the answer that you couldn't find through intuition and working and working and working and doing it again and again and again and trying to figure out your craft and figure out the answer. The more that you do that, the more confident and comfortable you become in your ability to find the answer. 
but then you have to change it because then you're too comfortable in doing the same thing. And so finding something that's different that you can try to seek the answer again, I don't know. I think it would be always looking, always working harder to find the answer. It's almost like a practice. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. The more that you stretch the end of the edge of the comfort zone, you have to go again and again. You said that you credit Landor as your crash course in learning the rules. When did you decide it was okay to start breaking them? I think that's a constant battle. I think we're always managing the rules because a lot of the clients that we work for are, are huge. And the past decade has been a lot of publicized brand failures. And so how do you make sure that you're able to push the edge of the envelope but not lose people along the way? I think sometimes we are able to do what's right by clients, do what's right by brands because perhaps we're – we're on just a, a continuum of hundreds of years of a brand, and you want to leave it better than you found it. But also, it's nice to do things that are a little more avant-garde, that push the edge of the envelope a bit. So if you've set up the rules, if you've done the right thing by a brand, you've renovated it, then you have to do something unexpected. You left Landor in 2012 and joined Jones Knowles Ritchie, also known as JKR, in 2013. What made you decide to do that? Well, I was creative director California, San Francisco, Landor's home, that was another great experience. Between working in New York as a design director and then working at the home of Landor in San Francisco, which is like working at two separate firms. It wasn't like the same company. It was a different experience, different types of work, a much bigger team. And when I first got there, I was terrified. I was the youngest creative director. I had more clients than I'd ever had, more people than I'd ever had. Uh, I arrived there at another terrible time in 2008. And when I think the, the first piece of work I presented was the day Lehman Brothers closed. So it was, a, it was a rough start to corporate branding. But after four years in Landor, San Francisco, I didn't want to work for a giant conglomerate. I didn't want to work for an uh, agency owned by an agency owned by a holding group because I didn't think it could create freedom and creativity. I couldn't support the team I wanted. I couldn't bring in the creativity I wanted to bring. And I respected people that had started their own agencies, that had hung their shingle out that had gone off to create something new. And also I thought I'd learned enough. And so I resigned to the CEO at the time and moved to Oakland because it's cheaper there and uh, took an intern and did my own work for about 18 months. And then you realize you, you need people around you that are not just interns. And it's also probably not a great business strategy to just do pro bono work. <laughs> In some way I was, I, I, was cleansing, I was cleansing myself from seven years of you know, big branding and wanted to do like, you know, cool things for nonprofits, cool things for cultural institutions, interesting design only, follow your passion projects. But then it was time to do something. Actually, one of my design directors that I worked with twice came and visited me in Oakland. He's like, do you really think you're, you're living your best life? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm making more money. I win in more awards. I'm racing motorcycles all the time. And he's like, no, you're not. You're sitting in your underpants signing posters that no one ever sees or cares about. Shouldn't you be in an agency doing real things, leading people, creating brands that people see? I'm like, oh, you might be right. And so I'd been swearing off all these recruiters who were trying to get me to do this and that and the other. And one recruiter kept calling me for like a long time. And he said, if you just Skype the founder, I'll leave you alone. And so I Skyped the R of JKR from his house. Uh, he was in the south of France. And I told him I liked their work from like the late 90s. Cool. I, I saw some of that stuff when I was in England. I'm not looking for a job, but it was nice to have a conversation. And I don't think anyone had ever talked to him like that because I really didn't want the job, which is weird because 
to date, I'd always wanted all the jobs. And with this one, I said no. And he said, just go meet the MD of New York. And if you meet her, we'll leave you alone. And so I met her, and I thought, hey, this could be something special. Now, her was the only person in the New York firm, correct? At the time, I think there were a few more. But yeah, Sarah Hyman was the MD of New York, and we were, well, they at the time were in a tiny office on Wooster Street. And I was one of many creative directors to be interviewed. And she said, you know, TikTok, I've got many creative directors to see. And I said, what, do you want to see my book? And she's like, I've seen it. And she's, I said, what do you want to talk about? And she said, ambition. And so we talked about what we wanted to create and ended up drinking Budweiser for about three hours. And Budweiser was the first real brief that was coming. I mean, long story short, uh, I woke up with a hangover and a job. So how big was the New York office when you started? Like three, four people, maybe? Eight, 10, 12. But, you know, in ensuing months, we went smaller and, and I brought friends from California. It's been seven years. How big is it now? In New York, it's over 100. London's grown to 150. We've opened offices in Singapore and Shanghai, so we're like 300 worldwide. So you're doing pretty well, Tosh. It's pretty good. How did you go about building the business? It started with a desire to build something. The reason I left Landor is I wanted to help create a firm. I wanted to create my own firm. This was an opportunity to do it with a company that had been around at that time for 24 years and had a great reputation. Some people have asked me, how did we do so well in New York? And I'd put it down to three things. We had real opportunity. The first brief we had was Budweiser. The second brief we had was Wheaties. I had the best talent I'd ever worked with, so I was able to recruit people from California, which I talked to them before I even accepted the job, because I knew I would need great thinkers, great designers to do what we wanted to do. And the third thing is we had freedom. And so what I didn't have at a company that was held by a holding group was real freedom to make choices and to kind of hire and fire to go after business we wanted to go after, to do what we wanted to do. And so the ability to combine those three things, I think, is what really started us off and has proven it to be successful. You work with both big brands and new brands, brands that are small. Are there different approaches for different size brands? I think we've made a lot of, uh, in the past seven years, we've treated small startup brands like giant multinational brands like Budweiser, and that never works. I think when you work with entrepreneurs, when you work with startup brands, especially the founders, they want to move fast, fast, fast. So figuring out other ways to work, doing startups completely different than we do big brands for sure. But I think both of them play by the same rules. you got to have a great idea. you got to make sure you manage your brand's equity. Even if you're creating it, you need to think that it'll be around for longer than a hot second. And then how do you make it relevant to the world? I understand you describe your work by explaining that you are part doctors and part Boy Scouts. Why Boy Scouts? Like many of the men in my family, it's required that you're an Eagle Scout. And so, finally, it all makes sense in retrospect. My Eagle Scout project was typography for trail maps. So I mapped the trails. I did the type for the wayfinding for the trails, did the signage, did all the posters. But anyway, the point in being a Boy Scout is I was an Eagle Scout, and what they say when you're camping is always leave the campsite better than you found it. Doctors... I'm not a doctor, but I've always liked the idea of the the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. So imagine if you're in the world of branding, leave the brand better than you found it and do no harm. And so I think in a lot of cases that you've seen in the last 20 years in our field, people have not applied those rules and they really can damage brands. So doctors and Boy Scouts. 
you've said that your biggest obstacle in designing for brands or with brands was how do you change everything and change nothing? Can you elaborate? Oh, for sure. Like, it was much harder than we anticipated to do the Budweiser work, which seems so easy. Well, no, it doesn't. Why would you say that? It's obvious. The solution is a beautiful label. The label has been in the cultural zeitgeist for like 150 years. It used to be done by hand. The advertising campaign talks about being brewed the hard way. It talks about 30 days is how long it takes to brew it. It talks about how it's the most expensive and the biggest, but the design is terrible. The execution is not crafted. It's not done by people who care about the typography, people that care about the brand, people that agonize over the details. And so we should design the hard way. So if you're going to brew it the hard way, design it the hard way. The trick is how do you make it so that the people that have loved it for years still see their brand, but then how do you change everything in a way that it feels relevant to today? And then it's even better if you can change all the words to something else so that you don't even read it anymore. How did you do it? We pitched that to them for three years, and we had some brave clients, and they finally said yes. And so we, we did all the Budweiser work, fixed all the typography, did all the beautiful, you know, crafting all the details, making a beautiful look and feel. And then for summer one year, we changed all the words, and there's like 14 pieces of bespoke type. It's all beautifully crafted and done. We changed it all to America because there's nothing more America than Budweiser. How do you persuade clients to do things they may be afraid of? and are resistant to, but you know that it's the right thing for them to do. Like, why keep pushing for three years? They used to give us briefs that said, please stop using work from previous presentations. And there was a section dedicated in the back called Toshland that I would just put in the same work. And we would answer their brief, give them what they said they needed, show them all the requests, and finally get to, but if you really want to do what you say you want to do, here's the answer. And I just did it in a much better way many, many years later so as to get right to the edge of being fired or fired a couple times and rehired. But in the end, persistence, keep on going. I just believed it was right. How hard is it to redesign a a recognizable brand in this day and age with so much online criticism that seems to happen the moment you launch a redesign? I mean, this has started in... 15 years ago? Oh, yeah. I, I remember it very distinctly. And it's it's instant. I mean, what did the Gap logo lasted for what? Three days. A weekend. Tropicana lasted for what? Six weeks. And there has been a time in the last decade where everyone is afraid that anything they do that changes the brand at all will damage equity. Consumers will leave them. They'll lose business. So how in the world can you make any progress for a brand, anything that's avant-garde, everything that's new and different, when the clients are afraid? That's the, that's the hardest trick. And we're not always successful. Sometimes we work forever, and the clients still refuse to make changes. We have built that respect incrementally, I think. And we've also done new ways to test things out. So you do things in small increments. You test and learn. You put things into market to see how they do. But really, it comes down to gaining trust with your clients and moving in that direction, even though it becomes scary. The best clients are the ones that green light things without things like PRS testing, without things that make them feel more comfortable because they feel it and they believe in it, and then you just launch it. And it is scary at first because sometimes the negative reaction is palpable. You might have seen we helped Dunkin' Donuts drop the donuts after many years. The client, it was their idea. They wanted to do it, and they'd been afraid probably for at least a decade. And they launched a test store just to test it out in Boston. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Boston, but Boston is not known to hide its criticism for the things that they love. 
and they love Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, I don't even know that there is a Starbucks in Boston. <laughs> no. Turn left at the, at the Dunkin', turn right at the Dunkin', and you'll get there. It's incredible. The feedback was so poor. It was hated. The launch of the store was hated. The dropping of the donuts was hated. Everyone hated it. And the good news is we had a client in that case that knew it was right and was going to power through the criticism. So a lot of times, you just have to wait it out. And also, our job was to change the conversation. All the press that was leaked on it was negative. Drop the donuts. They're taking away the donuts. Where are my donuts? And what we did was just change it at launch to going on a first-name basis, which is positive. But how are you able to persuade customers? It's one thing to have a fearless client that's willing to take a chance, somebody that's brave, that knows that big change is necessary. How do you get the consumer to feel okay about it? Turns out, take Duncan, for example. The consumers already called it Duncan. They were already there with us. Often consumers are much further ahead than the people in the business anyway. And they're less afraid, and they want to adopt things. A lot of the criticism that comes, I think, in brand refreshes, brand changes, is from like an inside baseball group of people that are criticizing each other. Most times, consumers, as long as you leave something and bring something new and don't take away something they recognize but provide something more exciting, they'll go with you. And if you can bring the people that love the brand, the, the people that love Budweiser, the people that love Duncan, and then bring new people to the world, that's great. That's the best. Tosh, I have two last questions for you. First, I understand that you're listed on the patents for two hair treatment products. You worried about losing your hair? No, this is uh, this is these are amazing things. I, I have a uh, my grandfather has many patents. He has since passed away, but he was in weights and measures and worked for Toledo Scale, and he has a book of like eight hundred patents for like weighing things, small and large. And I was so proud when he was still alive. I was like, I have two patents for the Procter & Gamble company. Uh, one of them is they're both hilarious ways to apply dye to your hair. One is root touch-up and one is perfect 10. And so I sold my patent to P&G for a dollar. And what did your grandfather think of that? Uh, he, he said two is good. Nice start. Okay. And my last question, I understand that you love motorcycles, and you've described the Harley-Davidson soft tail as the archetypical motorcycle. But I've discovered motorcycle race results wherein you placed on a Kawasaki. Oh, yeah. So what do you ride today, and are you still racing? I wish I was still racing, though. I haven't, I haven't raced in probably five years. When I did race, I raced a Kawasaki, and I raced a Suzuki. Harley-Davidson is, of course— one of the icons of motorcycle brands, not the best to race. How come? They're just not race bikes. Okay. There was. You, you there, said that like I should know. I'm sorry. I've, I've been on a motorcycle <laughs> once in my entire life and screamed the entire time. Yeah, they're they're a cruiser bike instead of instead of a race bike. So you know you're cruising around, you know, like like Easy Rider versus the you know race bikes where you're in full leathers and putting your knee on the ground, which is a bit crazy. There are a few bucket list things to do. And if, if I could rebrand uh, Ducati, because I have a Ducati and I love it, they've been rebranded. Vignelli's identity, I think from the 90s, the type is still there, but his mark is gone. They replaced it with a guitar pick that's puffy and has kind of a 3D vibe to it, which is not awesome. If I could work on Ducati, that would be great. Also, following the great work that Vignelli did, I'd love to get my hands on American Airlines. Oh, I'd love for you to do that too. 
Tosh, thank you so much for making the places that we shop and dine so much more attractive. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Tosh Hall is the Global Chief Creative Officer at Jones Knowles Ritchie. He's also an instructor in the Master's in Branding program here at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. To see more of Tosh's work, you can go to jkrglobal.com. As we approach the 15th anniversary of Design Matters, I'd like to thank you for listening all these years. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. A special thanks to our sponsor, AC Hotels by Marriott, member of Marriott Bonvoy. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.